This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. When art, sex, and politics collided, I was surprised to see that that was the subtitle of the new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, about the movie star, screenwriter, and director. I always thought that he was beloved. He's famous for his silent films, including Modern Times, which satirized how machines, including assembly lines, had become dehumanizing, forcing people to take their cues from machines. One of his sound films, The Great Dictator, is famous for the way Chaplin satirized Hitler and the authoritarian mindset. The Great Dictator got Chaplin into trouble. His affairs with young women, a paternity suit in which he was wrongly accused, getting smeared in gossip columns, and investigations into his alleged communist ties made things far worse. The FBI compiled a 1,900-page file on Chaplin. When he left America for a trip to England in 1952 to promote his latest film, Limelight, his re-entry papers were revoked, leading him to spend the rest of his life in exile. My guest is the author of Charlie Chaplin vs. America, Scott Iman. It will be published next week. He's also the author of many books about other movie stars and directors, including John Wayne, Cary Grant, John Ford, and Cecil B. DeMille. Thursday evening, Iman will be co-hosting a Turner Classic Movie retrospective of several Chaplin films, including Modern Times, The Great Dictator, Monsieur Verdoux, and Limelight. Scott Iman, welcome to Fresh Air. I found this book really interesting. I didn't realize how controversial Chaplin was and how many different agencies had investigated him. The FBI, the CIA, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the Post Office, the House on American Activities Committee. Um, so his most controversial film was the 1940 film, The Great Dictator. This was a satire of Hitler. It was, a, it was made a year before the U.S. entered World War II. What was controversial about ridiculing Hitler? Well, he started shooting the film in 19, September 1939. It came out in October 1940. At this point in history, America is a isolationist country, as is Congress. Hitler was not our problem. The Jews of Europe were not our problem. If Hitler took England, uh, we would just have to make a separate peace, and that would be the end of our problem. Chaplin believed otherwise, as did Franklin Roosevelt. As a matter of fact, Franklin Roosevelt was one of the few people in America that wanted the film made. Nobody in Hollywood wanted the film made because in uh, the latter part of 1939, uh, anti-fascist films were very, very few on the ground. Uh, but he was basically bound and determined. Uh, there's a letter in the book from Jack Warner to Chaplin. Jack Warner had just had a meeting with Roosevelt in the Oval Office, and Roosevelt had brought up Chaplin's... Uh, this is the Jack Warner is in the Warner Brothers company. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Roosevelt had heard the mutterings about Chaplin making an anti-Hitler satire. And he brought it up to Warner that he certainly hoped Chaplin was going to go ahead and make the film because he thought it would do a lot of good. And Warner wrote a letter to Chaplin reporting his conversation with the president and said, if, uh, if President Roosevelt believes it'll do a lot of good, so do I. I hope you go and make it, Charlie. He didn't offer to help in any way, <laughs> but he was passing along the story. Uh, he didn't really need to pass along the story. Chaplin was totally committed, but nobody wanted that film made. The British Foreign Office didn't want the film made because Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister and uh, he was attempting to appease Hitler unsuccessfully, obviously. Uh, the American Congress was uh, totally isolationist. So it was a... And the industry also, the American film industry, thought it was a dangerous film to make. But Chaplin basically ignored everybody. The Nazi representative in Los Angeles was a man named George Gisling. And his job essentially was to strong-arm anybody that wanted to make an anti-Nazi picture by writing a threatening letter or two or three. And uh, he wrote a threatening letter to uh, the head of the Motion Picture Association, a man named Joe Breen, inquiring as to Chaplin's plans to make uh, this film about, clearly, manifestly about Hitler. And uh, Breen reported back that he'd asked Chaplin about it, and Chaplin said, well, there's no script, there's no story, there's no nothing. 
And if indeed Breen did call him about this, Chaplin was lying through his teeth because three weeks later he started building sets to make the film. So he was, he was going to go ahead and make the film uh, come hell or high water. One of the reasons I think that his studio didn't want him to make the film is that they wanted all their films to play in Germany. And Germany was definitely not going to play an anti-Hitler film. And also the Germans for a while thought that Chaplin was Jewish. Why did they think he was Jewish? They were obsessed with the idea that Chaplin was Jewish. Uh, That's a very good question because at one point uh, there was a book published in Germany by a Jewish consortium that included Chaplin in a roster of, of famous show business Jews, which was erroneous. He wasn't Jewish, but he never denied uh, the erroneous charge because he felt it would give aid and comfort to anti-Semites. And besides that, he liked Jews. So he just went along with it. So most people went along with him because he hadn't bothered to deny it. So what was the impact of the great dictator on Charlie Chaplin's life? The thing about Chaplin is is that he was going to do what he thought was the right thing to do. He didn't listen to committees. He didn't listen to friends who told him, you're making a mistake. Uh, He had a very monotheistic view of his own career. (laughs) Uh, uh, The audience had always followed him wherever he led. They had followed him into feature motion pictures with the kid and the gold rush when people said that they didn't think he could pull off a feature because the character wasn't strong enough. They had followed him into uh, the 1930s when he insisted on making silent pictures after silent pictures were dead and buried. But he made two silent pictures, one City Lights, the other was Modern Times, both of which were huge critical and commercial successes. So he believed that the audience would follow him where he led because they always had before. Uh, so he doesn't. He didn't really have a lot of qualms about making the Great Dictator, uh, based on uh, th- almost thirty years in show business uh, and twenty-five years in the movie business. Uh, and by God, the audience followed him. So America enters World War II about a year after the Great Dictator is released, and once we enter the war, Chaplin starts talking about opening a second front on the Russian border. What would that have meant just on a technical level? He was completely unconcerned with that. He thought the only <laughs> way for... He, 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 he didn't get into logistics. He, can, right. he believed that Hitler was a, uh, a, a, a moral and, and religious and psychological and uh, death threat to Western democracy. And nothing else mattered except that he to be, to be defeated, logistics and military personnel and, and uh, everything else be damned. So he was, he was speaking from the point of view of a concerned citizen, not a military strategist. So what kind of trouble did this get Chaplin in, the idea of opening up a second front? The FBI began uh, uh, basically uh, taking down dictation of all of his speeches. <laughs> they shadowed him. They began uh, surveilling his house to see if any uh, known communists showed up at his front door for a meeting. That was the uh, proximate cause for a, a fair amount of the, uh, the government surveillance over the next couple of years. And it was amplified when, in, when he got hit with the paternity suit in 1942. Yeah, we'll get into that. So there was a 1,900-page FBI file on Chaplin. It's a lot of pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of pages. What were some of the different chapters in it? What were some of the things they investigated about him over the years? You name it. Uh, they, it depends on the period you're talking about. Basically, at one time or another, he was uh, the target of the entire security apparatus of the United States of America. When it, they, they would bug his phones uh, for, at some times, then they would back off on bugging his phones, and they would uh, uh, set up perimeters outside of his house to see who showed up at his front door. Uh, they would open his mail. All this took place over a period of eight to ten years, depending upon how excited J. Edgar Hoover was getting. Did he know this was happening? I can't imagine he didn't know, but if he did know, he did not acknowledge it. Did you get access or try to get access through the Freedom of Information Act to the FBI files on Charlie Chaplin? Yes. They've been available for years. 
Oh, I didn't realize that. So you read them. Uh-huh. All 1,900 pages. It's The very interesting thing is there was this disconnect between Hoover in Washington and the FBI office in Los Angeles. The FBI in Los Angeles was the, were, were the men on the ground in terms of surveilling the motion picture industry. And the head of the FBI office in Los Angeles was a man named Richard Hood. And because Hoover seldom went to Los Angeles. And every once in a while, Hoover would yank Richard Hood's chain and say, I want you to do this and this and this regarding Charlie Chaplin and see about this and that. And at first, Hood goes about his business and does what his boss tells him to do. But as the 40s wear on, Hood begins to drag his feet. Because by 1946, 1947, the FBI had informers in, in the American Communist Party, and they had the membership roster. And they knew who everybody in the Communist Party, American Communist Party, was. That's why in 1947, when they called the Hollywood Ten to uh, uh, Washington to, to be uh, uh, cross-examined, everybody in the Hollywood Ten either had been a member of the Communist Party and quit or was currently a member of the Communist Party. That's because they had the membership roster. So they knew that Chaplin was not a member of the party, had never been a member of the party, and never had given a dime to the party. And if they had thought about it for more than 20 minutes, they would have realized that anybody with Chaplin's autocratic leanings as an artist... Uh, a man who wouldn't, who, who oh, it's almost impossible for him to delegate anything, <laughs> would never be privy uh, or a member of a party uh, with a top-down autocratic drift because he could not possibly have done what anybody else wanted him to do because Chaplin had never done what anybody else had wanted him to do. Well, it sounds, it sounds like he was a man who didn't like to belong to things. I mean, he liked to make his own films and to lead everybody, but he didn't like to belong to groups or parties or... Anything like that? He belonged to the Catalina Yacht Club. <laughs> uh, I oh, was their ideology? To, there <laughs> yeah. you go. He belonged to the Lambs Club in New York, acting a bunch of actors. Mm -hmm. uh, he did. He never joined the Directors Guild. He never joined the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, no, he was absolutely not a joiner. Uh, it had stuff like that had zero uh, interest for him, and it meant nothing to him. Okay, so despite the fact that he was never a member of the Communist Party, he did have friends who were members, and um, you call him the most prominent victim of the Red Scare. In 1950, he becomes a target of Senator Joe McCarthy, the senator most responsible for creating hysteria surrounding people alleged to have communist ties. And you, you're right that this turned McCarthy from a backbencher with a drinking problem into a political star. What were the allegations he made against Chaplin? Uh, that he was a termite eating away at the foundation of America. And sooner or later, the House is going to collapse. Essentially the same charge that the uh, uh, investigators at the House Committee of Un-American Activities were making against all the uh, people they were investigating. So what, what, what became of that? Uh, nothing. Uh, basically, because uh, Chaplin had never been a member of the party, and he'd never actually was called before Congress. They kept threatening to call him before Congress, but they didn't. And I suspect that's largely because they had all the authentic communists that they could call before communists, or former communists that they could call before Congress, whereas Chaplin had never been in the party. So what exactly were they going to ask him? Right. And the FBI found nothing, too, in spite of those 1,900 pages. Did people know that? Because... Um, Smears tend to stick with you. It's hard to wash them off. So uh, did the charges, did the allegations stay with him even though nobody ever found anything? Yes, yes, because they were consistently spread and respread and respread again for a period of uh, uh, over 10 years, 12, 14 years. And, and it was a classic campaign of disinformation. Uh, that had no, in most cases, had zero relation to reality. There are, there were some hilariously lunatic stories that hit the public prints of the things that Charlie Chaplin was supposedly involved in. At one point, uh, there was a story, this is in the late 1940s, 
uh, when the uh, British and the uh, Irgun were, were fighting uh, uh, the, the war in Palestine. And it was said that Chaplin was aiding the Irgun in slaughtering British soldiers, helping slaughter British soldiers. Well, he, he had nothing. He'd never been involved with the Irgun in any way. My favorite of these lunatic disinformation stories came uh, actually after he'd been kicked out of the country uh, when it was printed that uh, he was going to adopt the children of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. <laughs> Who had oh, just wow. been put to death, yeah. you know, and again, a com- complete lunacy, but there was this steady drip, drip, drip of lunatic disinformation and gradually uh, the people that were prone to believe it, believed it. And the people that were uh, not prone to believe it gradually get, began to think, well, maybe. So let's start with the sexual allegations that surrounded uh, Charlie Chaplin. One of the things he got into trouble with was his affairs with young women. And you trace this interest in people much younger to when he was 18 and he was infatuated with a 12-year-old. And when he was like 52 or 53, he had an affair with Joan Barry when she was 22. Um, And she is somebody who had an affair with uh, J. Paul Getty, who was very, very wealthy. Um... This is the kind of age gap, 53 or 52 versus 22, that still makes many people very uncomfortable today. Um, And I'm wondering if you want to compare the reaction then to the kind of reaction you think it would get now. Well, it would cause trouble now. No question it would cause trouble now. I think even people are even more sensitive about it now than they were then. At the time he was going to trial in the paternity suit involving Joan Barry, uh, just as the trial was getting underway, he married Una O'Neill, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill. And she was 18 years old and he was 53. So the uh, his marriage seemed to confirm everything that the uh, the Hearst Press and the uh, Los Angeles Times Press and the Chicago Tribune Press, all the right-wing newspaper chains, were printing about him, that he was a roué, that he was a degenerate, blah, 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 blah. Uh, as it happened, he was married to Una O'Neill for the rest of his life, very... Happily, they had eight children together. Uh, But it seemed to confirm to the public at large that he was what the prosecution said he was. I want to ask you about the paternity suit filed against him. And this was filed by Joan Barry, the woman who was 22 when he was about 52. And she was asking for a lot of money in this paternity suit. The blood test showed he wasn't the father. Um... But before the blood test, Barry went to gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, who already didn't like Chaplin. Tell us a little bit about Hedda Hopper and her relationship with Chaplin. Like, you know, Barry went to the right person because if she wanted to smear Chaplin, Hedda Hopper was the person to do it. Hedda Hopper loathed Chaplin for reasons both political uh, and sexual. Uh, Hedda Hopper was extremely conservative. Uh, Hedda Hopper was one of the founders of the uh, uh, right-wing motion picture group that fomented the the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, and she had also been abandoned by an older Rue husband <laughs> as a young woman uh, who left her uh, high and dry with a young son. Her young son became William Hopper, who played Paul Drake on the Perry Mason TV series. So this uh, chaplain rang all these uh, alarm bells in her head for reasons both political and sexual. Uh, and Hedda Hopper, this was a story Hedda Hopper had been waiting for her entire journalistic career. So she called another friend of hers who was a columnist for the New York Daily News based in Hollywood. And they got interviews with Joan Barry and they, they began uh, uh, flooding uh, the prince with interviews with Joan Barry about how she'd been used, uh, 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 cast aside, impregnated, et cetera, et cetera, by Charlie Chaplin. The feds got interested uh, and he was uh, uh, prosecuted on the Mann Act. The Mann Act uh, involved transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes and was originally passed decades before to stamp out prostitution. Well, Chaplin hired Jerry Giesler uh, as his defender, his defense attorney, and the, the jury deliberated for an hour and found him not guilty. Well, that was the end of the Mann Act prosecution. Uh, and then came the paternity suit. And there were three blood tests, 
uh, administered by three different sets of doctors. Two of the blood tests proved the chaplain was not the father. The other blood test was ambivalent. So the evidence was certainly on his side. But blood tests were not dispositive in California courts for a number of years at this point. We're now talking 1943. And he was found guilty by the jury, not because of the evidence, but because of who he was and his past history and the fact that he had an affair with a 22-year-old girl, even though he was not the father of the child. So he took this rather amiss. <laughs> how, did, how did he respond? Uh, grudgingly. Uh, he, he wanted to appeal. The courts turned down his, uh, his appeals. Uh, so that was the end of it. So he not only had to pay child support for 18 years for a child that wasn't his, he had to pay the fee of the, of the attorney who had gotten, gotten him convicted. Well, let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Scott Iman, and he's the author of the new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. The 2023 MacArthur Genius Grants were just announced, and while none of us at Fresh Air were selected, a recent Fresh Air guest was. That attitude, that belief system about human beings is what allowed for the exploitation of black labor, the moving out of indigenous people, you know, all of those sorts of things. So it's not as though like the South is better or more racist, but it is the, in some ways an origin point for the way the whole nation operates. We revisit our conversation with author, historian, professor, and MacArthur genius, Amani Perry. That's exclusively on Fresh Air Plus. Listen for yourself by becoming a member at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with Scott Iman about his new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Chaplin was famous for his silent films and for his 1940 film, The Great Dictator, which was made the year before the U.S. entered World War I and mocked Hitler. Chaplin is a beloved figure in Hollywood history, but in his time, he was the target of investigations into his alleged communist ties. He was scandalized in gossip columns, condemned for his affairs with young women, and in 1952, on a trip to England, he was banned from returning to the U.S. and lived the rest of his life in exile. I want to talk with you about when Charlie Chaplin was banned from returning home to the U.S. I mean, he was born in England and spent his childhood there, but, but he spent, you know, majority of his life in, in the U.S. He'd gone to England in 1952 to promote his latest film, Limelight, and right before he left, Hedda Hopper wrote an item in her gossip column saying that he was planning this trip. And then she writes to Richard Nixon, who at the time was a senator from California. What does she write to him? She tells him that uh, something needs to be done and that he's the one to do it. She, she had been uh, a cheerleader for Nixon 
uh, ever since he got elected to Congress, in, in later the Senate. And uh, his, his uh, papers are full of letters from Hedda Hopper encouraging him, excoriating him, uh, nagging him when he didn't answer her letters. She was uh, categorized as high maintenance by any correspondent. She was she was a real uh, a real piece of work, as my grandmother would say. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she was basically trying to foment government action uh, using Richard Nixon as the battering ram. So she wants a government action against Chaplin. Absolutely. Okay. So does Nixon take action on her letter or just file it with the other letters that she's written him? He writes her a placating letter saying, yes, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. And then he changes the subject. Right. Because at this, by this time, he's running for vice president on the uh, ticket with Dwight Eisenhower. And he's got bigger fish to fry than Charlie Chaplin or Hedda Hopper. And evidently, he does absolutely nothing. There's nothing in Richard Nixon's papers to indicate he took any action, whatever, or was involved in the revocation of Chaplin's reentry permit. But meanwhile, the attorney general gets the Immigration and Nationalization Service to open an investigation that leads to Chaplin being banned from returning to the U.S. after his trip to England. What reasons do they give for banning him? Uh, the reasons were vague. Uh, the uh, the uh, document, uh, a press conference that the attorney general gave a week after the revocation uh, mentioned Chaplin's leering, sneering attitude towards the United States, mentioned uh, his lack of citizenship, uh, things like that. Uh, what was not stated and what Chaplin did not know was that if he had turned around and come back and demanded a hearing, uh, to get back his reentry permit, they would have had to give it to him, and he would they would have had to let him back into the country because, because he'd never be, he'd never been convicted of a crime. Mm. He had never been convicted of a crime, and that was the way that they deported various people that they didn't want in America, like mafiosi. They would get a mafiosi convicted on income tax evasion and deport him to Italy because he'd been convicted of income tax evasion. Uh, they couldn't get him on anything more lethal than that, but that was enough to have him deported. Uh, they could have done the same thing with Chaplin, except he'd never been convicted of anything, including income tax evasion. And believe me, they had gone over his corporate income taxes, his personal income taxes with fine-tooth combs for a decade, and they couldn't find a dime that he'd underpaid. So they actually had no legal justification for excluding him f from coming back to the country. Why didn't he ever become an American citizen? Because his, one of his core beliefs was that nationalism was a lethal disease, and it led to things like Adolf Hitler and Nazism in World War II. Uh, a friend of his named Max Eastman, who knew him quite well over a 40-year period, a good writer who started out as a socialist and ended up writing for William F. Buckley's National Review, uh, said that what people didn't understand about Charlie was that he was born in England and made his fortune in America. And if the reverse had been true and he'd been born in America and made his fortune in England, he never would have become an English citizen either. He simply didn't believe in, in uh, uh, the kind of patriotism that is knee-jerk in, in most countries. He didn't, he didn't partake of it. He considered himself, his phrase was, I'm a citizen of the world. You said had he fought the ban on his returning to the U.S., he would have been allowed in because they didn't really have anything on him. Mm -hmm. But he didn't fight it. Why didn't he? He got his back up. He was enraged. He was furious. Uh, and he didn't want to be a guest at the party if uh, he was disinvited. And he felt he'd been smeared for so many years. Oh, God, yes, yes. Would he have done this on his own? No, I don't think there's any scenario under which he would have left America on his own. He had a wife. He had four young children at this point with Una. Uh, they were all under the age of, I believe, eight. They were all, you know, going to school. He had an infrastructure. He had his own studio on La Brea Avenue. He was part owner of United Artists, a major releasing organization. And he was 63 years old. And uh, he figured he probably had 10 more years, you know. He was, he was not about to leave. And he, had, uh, he lived in one house, in California for his entire life. He'd been in one house for 30-odd years. He was not a guy who pulled up stakes quickly or easily or hopped around. So uh, he was going to be a lifer in Southern California. The fact that that choice was taken away from him just 
enraged him. And it's never really been obvious how enraged he was until you read the letters that I found in the chaplain archives that he wrote to friends like James Agee, uh, where he does vent, and he's clearly uh, uh, carrying around a load of anger verging on rage about what was done to him. Soon after he was banned from returning to the U.S., there was a campaign to ban his films from theaters. The American Legion passed a resolution urging American movie theaters to boycott his latest film, Limelight, and every movie in which he appeared. And in their magazine, they published a story about Chaplin saying his films were a sustained assault on on democratic ideals and that Chaplin had long used film as a propaganda medium. And uh, they said Modern Times is one of the few non-Soviet films constantly shown in exhibition in the Soviet orbit. That was totally false, right? Totally false. None of his films were uh, shown in the Soviet Union until the Gorbachev era because the uh, Soviet Union wouldn't pay the money that Chaplin thought they should (laughs) to rent the films, and he wasn't going to give them to him for free. So how successful was the campaign to ban Chaplin movies from theaters? Extremely successful. Extremely successful. Uh, Limelight was a huge hit in Europe. Actually, it made more money than any other Chaplin film in terms of European grosses. But it only, uh, it, it, a lot of places in America never saw it because the American Legion would show up and picket it and, and tell people going in that they were, uh, you know, being un-American by going to see uh, an un-American picture by an un-American artist. Uh, it's a love story, basically, about the theater. It has, it, there's no political orientation to it whatsoever. But they were, they were, they were a... Uh, limelight they were still, was. A limelight was a completely yeah. apolitical picture. Mm-hmm. But they were reacting to... They were still reacting to the great dictator. They were still reacting to modern times. And the idea of modern times being anti-capitalist. Uh, I don't know if you remember modern times, but it opens with the factory workers flooding into the factory in the morning and the uh, production line getting going and the uh, assembly line moving faster and faster and everybody trying to keep up. And then we cut to the president of the corporation who's working a jigsaw puzzle at his desk. That's as close to, <laughs> that's as close to a criticism of capitalism as it went. But that was Chaplin's worldview. He didn't see... The, he didn't see society at large as evil or as vampirish. <clears throat> he saw it as indifferent. He, do, he, didn't see, he didn't think society at large was genuine, had, had a limited interest in the life of the underclass. And it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a character flaw. It wasn't based on money. It was just based on human nature. So by the time Chaplin is banned from returning to the United States, few theaters can actually even show his movies. True. Absolutely true. And so he had them pulled from release in America. For how long? Uh, until 1964. Wow. So it was 12, 12 years. Was the last, it, it, no, Chaplin Films didn't play in America until 1964. And then when they did, it was because he had written his memoir, and it was coming out in about a year, and they decided to see if the temperature had cooled. So they booked a, a, a season of Chaplin Films in New York, and it turned into the great event of 1964. It played for nine, ten months, all the films in, in repertory. And uh, as it turned out, the memoir was a huge bestseller as well. So his enemies had died or gone to, gone to earth or simply a new generation had taken over and decided that whatever had happened in 1939 and 1942 and 1945 had no relevance in the 60s. Well, there's, there's more to talk about, but we need to take a short break right now, so let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, my guest is Scott Eyman, and he's the author of the new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. So after Chaplin decides not to challenge the ban against him returning to the U.S. He moves to Switzerland. He has a really good home life with his wife, Una, and their many children. But you say it ruined him as an artist. How? The two films he made after he moved to Switzerland are grossly inferior to the films he'd made amongst all the tumult and controversy in Hollywood in the 30s, 40s, and and even in the limelight in 1952. Uh, was Switzerland responsible or was age catching up with him? He wasn't that old. He was 63 when he got kicked out of the country. And he was 68 when he made A King of New York and uh, 78 when he made Counts from Hong Kong. So that's getting up there. But good films have been made by directors in their 60s and 70s. Um, so whether whether it was just a lessening of stimulus, uh, a certain passivity in the environment that he found in Switzerland... All of his letters from this period, he talks about how restful it is and how serene it is and blah, 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 blah. Uh, In one of Una's letters, she says says quite the opposite, that he would get claustrophobic with all the snow. And he'd talk about going to Marrakesh just to get to see the sun again. So so I think it was a double-edged sword. I think on one end, Switzerland gave him the serenity that he probably needed after 15 years of of enduring character assassination. On the other hand... It put him out of touch with what was going on in the world around him and what was going on in America. And there's only so much you can get by reading newspapers. Chaplin grew up very poor. His father was an alcoholic. His mother had mental health problems and was institutionalized. He lived in a rooming house with his father and his father's mistress. And then his father died young and Chaplin was sent to a workhouse as an indigent child um, just briefly describe what a workhouse was. A workhouse was basically a state-run orphanage for children whose parents were either dead or uh, rendered insane or institutionalized themselves or in jail. And they had no other uh, adult supervision, so the state uh, took them over. And Chaplin remembered it as a period not so much of abuse as utter humiliation, he was there for about two years. His brother was also there for a while. His, Sydney was older by two years. Uh, and Sydney was very, very close with Charlie and vice versa. Uh, Chaplin allowed very few people in intimately. He was not a man who glad-handed. He was not a man who had a lot of people close to him. He kept himself for himself. And I think that was a function of his childhood. When he early learned the hard way that whatever society says it's going to do or pretends it's going to do, essentially, you're on your own, especially in Victorian England with a alcoholic father who dies at the age of 37 and a a mother who's insane and infected by syphilis. So he was very quickly uh, responsible for his own, uh, after, after childhood, he was responsible for his own recognizance, his own meals, his own roof over his head. Uh, and sometimes he had a roof over his head, other times he didn't. So there, were, there were times when he lived on the streets. After the Immigration and Nationalization Service banned Charlie Chaplin from returning to the U.S., and he refused to fight it, because he felt he'd been so mistreated in the U.S. and so smeared. He never returned to the U.S., right? That was it. He came back to get his honorary Oscar in 1972. Oh. Well, on his terms. He, they were giving, they, they, his films were being reissued all over America, all over the world. He signed a deal for his film library. And his films were being reissued, and he, they gave him an honorary Oscar to make up for the fact that in 1952... Uh, basically the entire movie industry had turned the other cheek and ignored the fact that the most famous comedian in in town had just been driven out of the country. When he got kicked out of the country, three people in Hollywood stood up publicly and said this was a terrible mistake. You know who they were? Who? Sam Goldwyn, Cary Grant, and William Wyler. 
everybody else shut up. What did Charlie Chaplin say in his acceptance speech? He was overwhelmed. It was a 12-minute ovation. It was the longest ovation in the history of the Oscars. Old age is beginning to have its way with him when you look at it on, on YouTube. Uh, he's older, he's frail. He just kind of shakes his head and he can't believe it that after all these years, you know. The funny thing was, his son, Sidney, wonderful man, uh, gone now. Uh, but I, I had a long interview with Sidney, oh, 20 years ago probably. And he said, the thing, he said the thing that you have to understand about my father was he didn't care about the Oscar. He didn't care about awards. It, those meant nothing to him. He said, my father's image of himself was as a workman to show up every day and, and work on the script until it's as good as you can make it, to show up on the set every day until the scene is as you could, good as you can make it. He said it wasn't about awards. It wasn't even about money. It was about being a good workman putting in your time. He said, that's why he hated to go on vacation. Uh, the, you know, they had eight kids in the house and Una would get restless in the house and the kids would get restless. And Charlie, let's go to Ireland. Let's do this. Let's do that. And he really didn't want to go. He would, grudgingly, but he really wanted to stay and work on, a, on his, whatever his project was. He was a, 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 a compulsive workman. That was his identity. But he came back because it was a business deal and he was making a lot of money and they were going to give him an Academy Award. And ultimately, he was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed by the response. He was overwhelmed by the love that the audience projected at him uh, for those 12 and 15 minutes uh, compared to the, the, the obliquity that he'd had to endure all those years at the end of his Hollywood period. It's a very moving scene when you watch it on YouTube. Very moving. Uh, so it's a, it's a closing of a circle. It really was a perfect closing of a circle. He died five years later. Scott Iman, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Terry. It's been a lot of fun. Scott Iman's new book is called Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. After we take a short break... Ken Tucker will review the Rolling Stones' first collection of new songs in 18 years. This is Fresh Air. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Mick Jagger is 80 years old. Keith Richards turns 80 in December. And the Rolling Stones have just released their first collection of new songs in 18 years. The album is called Hackney Diamonds and features guest appearances, including Lady Gaga, Stevie Wonder, and Paul McCartney. Rock critic Ken Tucker says the album is surprisingly lively with at least one song that can stand among their very best. In recent years, the Rolling Stones as a band have existed as a brand or rubber stamp, as when a TV ad or a movie soundtrack plugs in a few bars of Gimme Shelter or Sympathy for the Devil as a quick, too easy way to signal danger or decadence or doom. With the death of drummer Charlie Watts two years ago, the notion of a new Stones album meaning very much was, well, it's not something one really thought about. And so the immediate warmth of Hackney Diamonds comes as a pleasant shock. Listen, 
Get Close, one of three songs that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards co-wrote with producer Andrew Watt. Watt has produced Post Malone and Justin Bieber, as well as recent work with veterans like Ozzy Osbourne and Iggy Pop. For this album, he keeps Jagger's vocals on an equal plane with the guitars and drums. Drums provided mostly by Steve Jordan, but there are also two cuts with work that Charlie Watts did before his passing. Andrew Watt's production style here is to be as self-effacing as possible while the songs work up their own grooves. That's driving me too hard. Prior to releasing the album, two singles were issued. The first was Angry, with a clenched Mick Jagger squawking, Don't be angry with me. It was so mediocre, such a self-parody, that it made you want to avoid Hackney Diamonds in advance. But then they released a second song, Sweet Sounds of Heaven. It's everything angry is not. Loose and soulful, unafraid to seem sincere and ambitious. Sweet Sounds of Heaven, Stevie Wonder plays keyboards that tumble into the guitars of Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood as Jagger's voice carries the melody. The cut is more than seven minutes long, and Lady Gaga starts singing background vocals about two minutes in. At first, you think the Stones are just using her to remind you of Mary Clayton's indomitable vocals on Gimme Shelter. But then, five minutes in, the music drops away, you think the song's over, and Gaga just starts vamping making a noise that Jagger picks up on, sending his own voice into a falsetto, and together they bring the song to a new climax. Stones conclude Hackney Diamonds with a cover of Muddy Waters' Rolling Stone, just Mick and Keith on harmonica and acoustic guitar. It's the blues song the band took its name from. It's a very nice farewell, but the album really peaked just before that, 
with sweet sounds of heaven about the earthly pleasures of making music, for which the Rolling Stones sound vigorously grateful. Ken Tucker reviewed the Rolling Stones' new album called Hackney Diamonds. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be filmmaker Werner Herzog. He goes to extremes to make films about extreme personalities, predicaments, and places. He's made movies in the Amazon jungle, a documentary about a man who lived with grizzly bears until he was eaten by one. He's described two of his lead actors as madmen. He's written a new memoir. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Sherrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Boldenato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.